everybody, my name is Austin Killian. I'm Andrew Harper. And we're both pastors at First Baptist Church in Cleveland. Welcome to the Exiles Podcast, where we talk about life, doctrine, hot topics, and all things Baptist from a gospel-centered point of view. Very nice. Yes, we got through it. All right. It's a Wednesday. Yeah. We're recording and we're dropping this episode today. Okay. And we have a lot to cover. I know, a lot of questions. Yeah, and so I don't know if we can spend a lot of time in banter. And so I feel like we just need to jump in. So let me just ask you real quick, what are we talking about today? We're talking about the Southern Baptist Convention meeting. <laughs> I was like, Southern Baptist what? <laughs> of 2022 in Anaheim, California. Yeah, and out of the two of us, one of us has been to the convention this year. Yes, I was in the room where it happened. Yes, you and Brother Tommy Williamson. Correct. And who else? Uh, you went with uh, your friend Paul. Yep, my buddy Paul Does was Paul there. listen to the podcast? I don't think so. I don't know. I'll we, ask him. I'll we, tell him. We've now given him a shout out. So, <laughs> so I'll tell him, hey. But he's also going to be angry because we, we like promised each other we were going to do a podcast together. So it's probably going to be really upset. So, Paul, if you listen to this, I just want you to know <laughs> that um, if you were Andrew's best friend, you no longer are. <laughs> I have replaced you. It's just hard to do a podcast with someone who doesn't live by you. So, Oh, so you're saying if Paul lived here, oh, sure. I would be by myself. Maybe. <laughs> okay, well... Um, or, I would, or we would be doing both of them. So, oh, you would be on two podcasts. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, you're Mr. Popular. <laughs> most, most, most definitely. So, um, I do want to say that from my experience last year in the convention, I could tell that there was a lot that happened in the room sure. that people were unaware of that weren't in the room. Oh, and so, yeah. when I came back to Cleveland, there was a lot of people who came to me like asking a lot of questions. Like, that's not anything would happen like you are being very misinformed on what's happening and so oh sure i would always just encourage anybody if you ever have questions about the convention first and foremost don't go look at like news sources and stuff go look go talk look to, at twitter yeah go talk to people that you know yeah who have gone and that you trust because they're going to be able to give you the perspective of what took place in the room because you forget about all the conversations and all the discussions and all the debates that took place in order for the convention to make decisions and to move forward into next year's convention. Right. So that's why we wanted to do this podcast today because you've actually been in the room. You were there. Right. You witnessed it. And we're going to ask you several questions and you're just going to answer it. So like, I hope your back's not hurting today because you're going to be carrying the team through this podcast. Like every other day. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> here we go. So we knew going into the convention that there would be some tough conversations to be had. And as a messenger, what were the two most discussed topics at this year's convention? Um, I think in the room, one, I mean, one that everybody was, was there for was the discussion on the sexual abuse task force that was put together to oversee the investigation that happened from uh, Guidepost. So that was, I think, I think out of... Some very few things get a full hour of a report, especially like a report from a committee. Um, some entities like the IMB, things like that, those will get an hour of time to kind of share. Um, but when it came to like actual discussion, obviously that was probably top two on the list for sure. Um, and even, I'm trying to think, there's not a lot of discussion when it comes to like picking the president, even though there's a lot of people in the room for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say on Wednesday, because that happened on Tuesday afternoon, I think. And then Wednesday, we took on the motion of defunding the ERLC. Mm. So that was brought f- to the floor for debate. 
Um, those were probably the two. Um, I'll say two. There's a third one of the, the whole pastor issue from the committee that was charged with trying to figure out the thing about Saddleback. Yeah. And I would say there was no really conclusion to that. Mm-hmm. Th- that motion still sits in that committee. And so there's no, nothing was resolved. But for the other two, they were resolved with a decision. So for today, we'll look at two of them. We'll look at the one on the guidepost report, yeah. and then we'll look at the one on what is the definition of a pastor because there's a lot of people who they hear that question and they're like, wait a minute, the Bible defines that. Why did we leave with that unresolved? Yeah, that's fair. So we, we're going to try to our best to answer that question today. So let's start with the guidepost report. We know that Guidepost is the outside entity hired to investigate and report any findings regarding the 700-plus cases of sexual abuse that were brought forward for the SBC leadership. Um, and we know that there was some tension in the room, uh, and it, you even said that it was like the weight was heavy. It was mm-hmm. a heavy, heavy environment. So what were some things that were discussed in regards to that report? Just a couple of things. Um, First was kind of the just the findings of the report. They were made kind of public for people to go and see and look at and things like that. And so just the report itself, mm-hmm. like that it was completed, um, that was kind of a heaviness to the room because there was an understanding that most people in the room had read it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not assuming everybody who was there has, has fully read the report. It was a, long, a lot of pages. But there was an understanding of, hey, this happened. This isn't just an allegation here or there. There's like credible like evidences, conviction, all this kind of stuff has been put together and has now honestly kind of been put all in one place for us to see just how bad it was. Um, and then, uh, so that was kind of the big issue, just figuring that out. And then the kind of the, the area of tension is that the organization, the company that does this um, investigation, is not a Christian company per se. They are still a secular company. Even though they do this kind of investigation for Christian entities or secular entities, they do it for businesses or denominations, either way. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had posted probably a week out from the convention uh, a pro-LGBTQ kind of post on their Twitter handle. Yeah, I, w- I got to watch a little bit of the convention. That's when the connection started getting a little rough for, for me. But yeah. I saw some of the discussion on that part. So some people were trying to bring that up to basically – invalidate the entire report to say, well, because they think this way about LGBTQ issues, there's no way that the report is valid. Mm-hmm. And what I think was helpful is the, I think it's Bruce, Frank Bruce or Bruce Frank, uh, who was the chairman of the task force, basically was kind of like, just because someone has this position as an organization doesn't mean that they're not qualified to do the work of investigating sexual abuse. Like, those two things aren't connected, really. Right. We don't appreciate that that happened, and we don't appreciate that that's connected to— No, it's to, not approved. Like, we're not approving No, we're not, we're not supporting that. Um, right. But honestly, whenever—they um, they were looking for different firms to be able to do this investigation. They were the only firm that was able to do what we were wanting to do and the amount of time we were wanting to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of it was is the messengers called for a investigation to happen and then a report to be given the next year. The only firm big enough to actually carry that out and have the personnel to do that was Guidepost. Mm. And so there's other firms that are Christian firms, but they're not nearly as big or have the ability to carry that out. Um, and so to actually do the will of the messengers, that w- in a way, it kind of, kind of, if they would have said in two years, three years, four years time, we want to hear a report, right. we would have more options. But 
because the messengers voted on one-year rotation of when they wanted to have it. Sorry about that. That was me. Right. <laughs> I went to that one. So that, that kind of um, limited the scope of who they could get to do the investigation. And so also one of the things that is pointed out, I think in the report – um, or, a, or a statement from the task force after that accusation about the inv- invalidness of the investigation is that even Guidepost appointed people from their own company who were Christian, even though they work for a secular organization. That, that happens. Like people all around the world work for organizations that support LGBTQ when they personally don't. So they actually appointed Christians and many who had Southern Baptist backgrounds to work on that investigation mm. so that they would understand the polity and how it's how it works together. So even though that wasn't appreciated that they posted those things and that that's what they support as their views as a company, um, the work that they did for the SBC, I think, is still um, good work and still shows what we needed to see. Yeah. So Guidepost also, when they came to the, conven- to the convention, they gave the convention several recommendations to implement in their report. Uh, and the task force elected to bring up two of those recommendations, right? Correct. Yeah. What were the two recommendations, and why didn't they provide the rest? Because I think there was like, what, 15 total recommendations? Yeah, there were like, yeah, there was 15 or so. And why did they only bring up two? So one of the recommendations recommendations that they bring up is actually kind of in support of some of the other ones. So one of the reasons that they couldn't just bring the whole full slate is because some of the things that the recommendations was asking the SBC to do, um, the way that they were presented or given doesn't work necessarily with the way our polity works. Not that they can't be, like the principles can't be taken from those recommendations Mm -hmm. and actually kind of tweak to work for our polity, but just copy-paste, they couldn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And so the task force took them. Um, looked over these kind of things and said, okay, what can we get accomplished at this meeting? And so the two things that they did was they made a recommendation for a, another task force to be put together to oversee um, the different changes that need to happen uh, and reforms that need to happen and the way that churches are trained, state conventions, associations, and the SBC is a national kind of entity think about and handle abuse moving forward. Part of the reason they wanted to do that is because the task force that was appointed last year was only appointed to oversee the investigation, not to oversee reforms and those kind of things. And so they're, they're wanting a task force to be appointed for an ongoing work that will happen over, over many, many years. And that's the first recommendation given right, by and that, and that task force would be appointed by the president. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was voted on that next day, I think, Wednesday or I think it was Wednesday yeah. or Tuesday. Um, and then you've got the second one is that work basically began to compile a database of sorts um, that have the, either convicted um, offenders that are church leaders, church staff, uh, deacons, like basically anyone who would be connected to doing that abuse in the church itself mm-hmm. could be added to that, um, or those who have a credible um, – accusation brought to them and that credible accusation has to meet the threshold of civil litigation so as if someone wanted to sue that other person they would have enough evidence to sue that person in civil court um and so that that gave some language to say you can't just 
up and decide I'm going to go accuse someone and they get put on the list. Right. And also a person can't do that. A church has to vote to actually do that mm-hmm. as a church themselves. Okay. And so there were some there were some there was some pushback to that recommendation, but as they kind of explained some of the guidelines that someone couldn't just show up one day and say, "Hey, so and so did so and so" without any kind of investigation or any kind of support or evidence. That's not what they're advocating. Um, so there's some guidelines and some rails on how to work. That, that's supposed to work. Um, so those were the two that were affirmed, that the creating of a task force and then the beginning of creation of this database. Well, with that, there was a lot of discussion in regards to the guidepost report and the recommendations. So can you give some insight on both sides of the discussion? So in other words, what what was said about from the side of those who disagreed with the recommendations in the report and what was said about those who agreed with it? And what was the final vote of of, of the in, va- in favor of? So I'd say the only dissension for the report itself was, and, and creating this task force was twofold. One was, hey, the, the firm that does, did the investigation um, holds these perspectives on human sexuality mm-hmm. uh, and marriage. And so therefore, because of that, we need to basically do a redo and get an, a Christian company to come do the report. Um, so that was one argument that people, that not people, a few individuals seem to have made. Um, and then uh, another element to that also was there was one gentleman, I think, uh, came to the mic and basically tried to make it seem as if, well, there's only this many offenders. The Baptist um, Convention is much bigger than that. So really this amount of people only account for a small percentage of those pastors who are leading churches we really don't have a, a big deal to, to deal with, and part of it, yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. not, it was not good. Like, at, I remember, I, I was, I was listening to that one. It was really like as he began to kind of walk down it, you could hear people just kind of going, Mm-mm, "Don't, don't, don't say do that. this, yeah. don't." Mm-hmm. And so, part of it came to the to the kind of a head whenever uh, Bruce Frank basically said, "Only about, uh, I forget how much it was. It was less than five percent of a cases of abuse get reported." Yeah, and so he's saying if this is how many we have that we know of, this is just the tip of the iceberg of possibilities. Yeah, when we were going through ministry safe training, didn't the guy didn't, wasn't one of the statistics that like one in every four, four women and yes. one in every five. five men? Yes, you know, so you're looking at in that room alone, just I mean, not, maybe not affected by the SBC and yeah. who's in the SBC, but over 25 percent of the people right. in that room. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so so that was one of the issues that they were trying to bring, and and part of that just I think comes from not understanding how those statistics work and and how prevalent it really could be, mm-hmm. um, and, and so that wasn't wasn't helpful. Um, but on the other side, um, the kind of argument against the firm being pro LGBTQ was simply to say their position on that subject doesn't negate their ability and professional quality of being able to do an investigation. They weren't investigating our views on LGBTQ issues. They were simply investigating has sexual abuse happened or not. Right. Um, And so that's what they were doing. And so there was a lot of support. Both both of those recommendations got voted and approved overwhelmingly. Yeah. Um, They didn't have to go to a a count or anything. But it was obvious that it was a two-thirds vote. Uh, it was a majority vote. So you may not have an answer to this next question, but I'm going to ask it. If you don't, just we'll just move on. Mm-hmm. So we've had conversations with people here. Maybe you've had conversations from people in your family or close to you. 
Is there any misconceptions that someone from the outside looking in may have simply uh, may have simply because they were not present at the convention? And if so, what were they? And can you briefly clarify it? Um, I mean, I'd probably have to go read some of these, you know, these people who are uh, hyper oversimplifying things. And so there's, I would be very weary uh, of if you find a blog post or an article about something that happened at the convention and it's like f- less than 500 words. Yes. That means you've, that means whoever's written that has oversimplified that to paint a picture, good or bad, of some someone or something in the SBC. Um, Can I add a plug here real quick? Yeah. Yeah. SBC Weekly. Yes. is a podcast that puts out news about the convention every single week. Mm-hmm. And they talk about hot topics and other aspects of the convention weekly. And so that's a very good source. Mm-hmm. And their podcast provides links yeah. uh, for for every major topic that they discuss. So mm-hmm. that's a that's a resource from within that can kind of help with that too. Yeah, and I would say pe- people will probably take the the – the issue of the firm being pro LGBTQ and they'll, they'll blow that out of proportion and connect it to some way being invalid of the report. Um, there's probably some discussion around, um, that's, was it first Corinthians six or second Corinthians six? First Corinthians six. Yeah. But the lawsuit. Yeah. Just, just using scripture out of context. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's there, and there's also this, this, this perception within, some groups of the SBC that the SBC doesn't think, or people who are leading the SBC or entity heads don't believe in the sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture because we want to use um, other people who have different expertise. And so there's, I think I remember seeing one, one person talk about not needing um, trauma counselors or trained counselors to help those who um, uh, have experienced sexual abuse and that the Scriptures are sufficient. And, and, and it's just, it's someone who obviously probably hasn't dealt with someone who's ever had that experience happen mm-hmm. because um, th- there is. Uh, I don't think anybody would disagree in that circle that you're talking about that the scriptures are sufficient. No, absolutely not. Right. But there are also professionals that help, that, who, who have been trained to think yes. through these issues with somebody. Right, and so part of it is to say, are, is the Scripture sufficient for the things that it's supposed to be sufficient for? Absolutely. But the the, the Scriptures don't teach me the, the chemical reactions that happen in the body whenever abuse happens. Like, we can go and study those things and begin to think about those things, and you can use science, we can use um, psychology, some of these elements, obviously under the authority of the Scriptures, um, to help people. And I think that's what, that's the whole reason I think God makes us creative and allows us to think and be critical problem solvers and do the things that we're made to do. And we do that under the authority and sufficiency of the scriptures. Mm. Um, but like the Bible doesn't teach me math, even though math is true. So part of it is to say, um, is all the scriptures true? Most definitely, but not all truth is found, particularly just in the scriptures. Um, we see that God has general revelation that we see that is true about him that we don't have to just go and find that 2 plus 2 equals 4 in the Scriptures. We can see that that's the case in his created order. Right. Um, and so that some of these people, uh, what, what I think is, is happening is they're trying to use the Scriptures and the sufficiency of, sufficiency of Scripture to make them the, the better person in the conversation when really what they're doing is worshiping the Scriptures in a way that I don't think God intended us to use them. Hmm. 
um, because I don't think it's wrong for someone to who's suffered abuse to go and see someone who's a Christian counselor who's had psychology and biology and those kind of trainings. And you, know, and you also use the Bible with that. The times I've gone and talked to a Christian counselor, like I have, I have walked away, like having discussed discussed more scripture than yes. than you know than you may realize. Right. Their, their worldview is from a biblical foundation. You know. Right. Uh, so I think there there might be some of that. Uh, so if you read anything that says that the current SBC uh, direction or entity head or president or whatever doesn't believe the Bible is inerrant or isn't sufficient, then that's just not true. Yeah. All right. We're going to shift topics. Now, Rick Warren, who is soon to be the former pastor at Saddleback Baptist Church, he approached the mic to give his letter to the SBC. That's so funny to me. His presence created controversy after last year's convention voted to have a credentials committee investigate their church. Correct. Um, they were accused of having ordained women as pastors, which raised concern for many given <clears throat> for many given that the SBC is largely complementarian. Right. Okay. So, however, he uh, that is Warren felt that he was still in the right about when it comes to his definition of pastor versus maybe a complementarian view of pastor. So, can you explain what Saddleback's position is on the office of pastor? Because that's going to kind of give context to why this topic was such a big deal. Yeah, and and there's not really like one silver bullet of why this is a big deal or not a big deal or why there's confusion. So the Credentials Committee doesn't come um, after taking this motion um, with really a solution other than they need to go and basically – talk with, have a conversation with Saddleback to try to understand how it is that they use this this title of pastor um, and that they're ordaining women to be pastors in their church. Mm-hmm. And so the reason that they come with this recommendation, and, and I think it's poorly worded, it's this, this recommendation of saying, how do we need to define pastor? Well, the issue really, I think, stems from the different ways in which churches use pastors. Some people have a senior pastor, and they are a uh, elder in the way of First Timothy three and Titus. Mm-hmm. Um, some, and they're ordained, and, and everyone knows what that means. Some have maybe a student pastor that's not. He's in seminary. Uh, he's twenty years old, or not. You know, very very young, never been ordained. But the position has always just been student pastor. And so he gets put in that position, and that's what he's called. But he's not really an elder in the, in the sense of he's not First Timothy qualified and Titus qualified. So there's this discussion about how do we use pastor. And the reason that that happens is, is we don't have a denominational standard. Mm-hmm. We would say the scriptures are our standard, absolutely. But we know plenty of churches that operate outside of that standard because many churches in the SBC life, their deacons serve basically functional as elders. Yeah. Um, they qualify them as deacons. They ordain them as deacons, but yet they oversee the church more than the pastors do. Mm-hmm. And so there's this there's this quandary that you have. Like if you think of the PCA, the, the Presbyterian Church of America, they those men who are going to be pastors and lead those churches have to go to seminary and they're ordained into the denomination. That's just how their polity works. We don't really have that kind of setup. 
So for Rick Warren to come to the mic and say he separates the calling of gifting of pastoring from the position of pastoring. And so he's saying these women that we've ordained as pastors, they have pastoral gifts. They're able to teach and they're able to lead people well and shepherd them well, but they're not overseers. Right, and which you and I and the people we in our circle, we would disagree with that. Yeah, and, and part of it is is they have elders. They have 12 elders that lead the church and oversee it. And it's almost like they created a hybrid like model of this office. Right. So I would say that the scriptures use the same words really synonymously of elder, overseer, and pastor. Right. That these are all the same office, same gifting, same responsibilities. And Rick Warren is simply saying we see these as two different things. We see elder and overseer. Because in First Timothy, that's those are the two words that are used, elder right. and overseer. And then pastor is only used one other time, and it's connected to shepherding the flock of God among you. Yeah. And so he separates these two, whereas the Catholic Church also separates them two, but they separate them into bishop mm-hmm. uh, and then priest. So you have a similar separation applied in a way that's not normal in the SBC, but since we don't have a like hard and fast... This is how this is. But you made, a, you made an interesting point that I don't guess I've caught in our conversations leading up to this, that this is not just a Saddleback problem. This is a SBC church-wide problem in that you have no standard of pastor or elder any like in many churches across the SBC. So, yeah, someone who's disqualified or not disqualified, is not qualified to be a pastor, has the title pastor, and that's no different than a uh, woman having mm-hmm. a, the title pastor as well in a right. church. And so you're saying that that basically there was a call to, we need to address what do we as a convention believe about what the pastor should and should not be. Right. So that's what I think the Credentials Committee was doing. I think they worded it poorly because people came to the mic who were just outrageous about, well, what do we, what do we mean we got to define pastor? I don't think they were trying to say we have to define pastor as in what the scriptures say a pastor is. I think they're trying to say in the life of the SBC, we need to really figure out what do we mean by pastor. And, and they, they even gave some like examples of student pastor, children's pastor, missions pastor. Like are all of these actual First Timothy ruling, you know, overseeing, teaching pastors, or is this just the name of the position that you've put on your your job description, and you fill people in that position as it comes open. Right, because I've been I've been to um, I was talking to a pastor down the street a couple couple months ago, and he referred to his children's director as the children's pastor, um, and I asked him what he meant by that, but he gave a definition of director, mm-hmm. not definition of pastor, but they've always gone by the title pastor, and he, right. she's sitting in that role, and so, but there was a moment of like, wait a minute, I don't know if we. Right, and that's and that's what the the credentials committee was getting to, but because of I think the way that they worded it, it came across as um, no one knows what a pastor is, and so therefore uh, we got to go figure that out. And people were just like, you know, kind of going crazy because of that. And so I get some of that to an extent. You would say, well, yeah, because the Bible says X, Y, Z. But there's plenty of churches that have positions that are called pastor, because that's what the position is called, mm-hmm. of people who aren't qualified to be pastors, or who don't teach, or yeah. who don't actually make decisions and oversee. And you also have on the other side deacons who serve in a lot of ways as functional elders right. and pastors, even though they don't teach and they're not qualified, 
but they still oversee the church and make decisions. And so they're saying there's a huge flexibility when it comes to our denomination. And so for us to go point out Saddleback and get onto them because of the way that they're using it in a, in a strange way, they're saying there's other instances where people are using it in strange ways. Yeah, we're not we're not we're not prepared to give a judgment on this because again, there's this flexibility that people seem to have and not having it set correctly or set in stone. Right. So many people are obviously disgruntled by his definition because it seems to twist the scriptures a bit. Nevertheless, there was a recommendation made for the convention to properly define what a pastor is and what it isn't. And a lot of people on the outside, including myself before uh, you and I talked, wondered about the state of our convention if we really had to take a year to define such a basic role found and defined in Scripture. So we just kind of discussed it, and we kind of we we kind of brought some light to it. But can you just give me like one streamline of like I need some clarity? What exactly is the credentials? committee asking of the convention to do when it comes to this definition because i think when we talked about it the other day and i'll this this might help when we talked about it the other day you mentioned that we had decided we were not going to associate with people churches who affirmed racism we were not going to associate with churches who affirm um lgbtq plus qrs tv whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> anyways um so what exactly based off of that are we asking people to either disassociate with churches who don't properly define pastor or what are we doing here? So part of it was that the credentials committee made the recommendation for them to create a kind of a study group to study what, what the BFM meant when it says pastor and the position and function of that pastor and also to get with Saddleback to figure out how they use that term and that office. And that was what was being um, kind of ridiculed in a way on the mm-hmm. floor. And so what happens is, and this is after Rick Warren comes and after all this kind of discussion, because they tabled it for a while because it went over time and they brought it back up later, the credentials committee simply r- removed that recommendation. They rescinded that recommendation. And so basically the motion to figure out if we should disassociate from Saddleback is still with that committee, mm-hmm. the credentials committee. So they were just saying, like, you know what? We're going to do a redo. We're going to take that that uh, recommendation back, and we'll come next year with something else. Or they can actually, because they're a standing committee, they can make a ruling and communicate that to the convention at any point mm. during um, the year. They don't have to wait until uh, the convention meeting again. Okay. Now, yeah. let's shift again to a different topic. During your time in Anaheim, what was your highlight of the week at the convention? In other words, what blessed you the most? The weather <laughs> and lack yeah. of mosquitoes. Yeah, there you go. That was just per- personally for me. Um, but I would say at the beginning of, on, I think on Tuesday morning, they commissioned 52 or 56 missionaries. Mm-hmm. And so many of them were going to closed countries. Man, I'll tell you what. I, for the When I saw that last year for the first time, when I went to the IMB send-off, that was like one of the first times I was like, this is, this is, you get to see the convention and like what it was created for. Yeah. You know? And so what they did, which is really cool, is they'll have, they'll have like the couples or the individuals come up to like a mic, state their name, state where they're going, just generally, like they'll say, you know, Europe or Southeast Asia or whatever. And then they'll give like a, like a quick sentence of how they were called to that place. Like, 
they might say, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm going to so-and-so place. Um, when I was growing up, my parents um, taught me so-and-so-and-so. Like, they would give almost like a short little testimony of how God got them to this place. And what they did is they set up these two kind of white um, sheet-type things um, that would cover up someone's – you couldn't see behind them, but you could see kind of a silhouette – and you would have these people who were going to these close countries come up behind these little sheets and you could hear them like on the mic, say where they were going, like Middle East, North Africa, um, Southeast Asia, these close countries that they could not be seen. And then them say, us and our four kids are going to go to this close country. Mm-hmm. And you were like, wow, yeah, that's awesome. Praise the Lord. So that was really cool. And part of it that I like the most is we didn't have any friends that were being commissioned there, but we have a lot of friends from seminary that are – that are in close countries, that are in different parts of the world. And so to be able to kind of see them be commissioned that way was cool. And it was a really cool way to start off. Have you ever been to one? I have been to one um, uh, in at Temple Baptist Church in Hasburg. Okay. They gotcha. did one. I actually served. Um, but they, but none of the people who were there were going to close countries. Right. So that was the first time I've ever seen that before. Okay. Two more questions. Okay. Bear with me. We're almost done. Do you believe the Do you believe progress was made this year at the convention, and from your observation, do you believe the SBC is moving in the right direction? Oh yeah, I think so. Um, you've got, I mean, at this point, like every seminary has got a great president. I mean, there's not a seminary that I wouldn't recommend to someone, depending on what they're wanting to study specifically. But like every seminary has got a good good president who's leading well, uh, who's also thinking. This isn't this isn't to like bash old presidents, but like this, that's thinking newer. Like that's thinking like, you know, they have a better kind of tag on students who would be coming to their seminaries. Yeah. Whether it's marketing or branding or just degrees to offer, they're adding different degrees on like business administration and church planting, or like those kind of things that just make sense in the ministry world. Uh, so those are great. Um, I think the things that we voted on for the sexual abuse task force was good. I think the president that we elected, Bart Barber, is good. Um, I think he will bring – what I like about Bart Barber is that if you go and watch, like, his church services, he serves in a church like the size of our church. Mm. Like, it's a small church. 200. two, three hundred folks in a small town. Out of all the SBC presidents from the last, like, 50 years, he is from the smallest populated place. Hmm. of all presidents, except for in That's the 70s. In the 70s, there was a layman who was elected as president. <laughs> and he was from Yazoo. No way. City, Mississippi. No way. Yep. A layman? A layman. Man, could you imagine? From Yazoo. Can you imagine just like, that's like an hour from here. Yeah. So other than him, he comes from one of the smallest Can you imagine being a layman walking up in front of all these pastors and being like, hey, we want to nominate this lay guy? Yeah, there you go. That's crazy. He was, And he was the last layman to ever be nominated or actually become president. All right, last question. How can we be praying for the convention moving into 2023? Um, you pray for – I pray for Bart because he's probably still going to be attacked by these people who for some reason think he doesn't like love the Bible and love people, which he does. Um. And he's like he's he's a small he's a small town pastor, but he has a PhD in church history from Southern Seminary. I mean, so he's very learned, very educated, very smart, um, good pastor. He gets what it means to be a pastor in the SBC uh, more so than most other pastors that have been president and 
you know, the last several years. So I'd pray for him. And he also is, he is tasked with appointing that, that task force that will lead reforms for the next however many years. Yeah. Um, and so wisdom there. And then uh, I think <clears throat> also for us to figure out what it means for us to say that for you to be in cooperation with the SBC is for you to cooperate in like faith and practice for us to kind of get some handlebars on what that means. And hopefully Adam Greenway's motion that he made will, will some, some form or fashion show back up in new Orleans mm-hmm. so that we can kind of get some clarity on what he was trying to say. Cause I think what he was trying to say was really important and was really helpful. Um, so if we could, if he could bring that back, that would be good. Um, but just praying for clarity and honestly praying for, unity and for those with a spirit of disunity to be moved by the spirit to see that the rest of the people in the SBC are not the enemy um, and if they're so disunified then maybe they need to remove themselves from cooperation mm. and that's that's okay I think yeah. that's fine if that's a decision you and your congregation wants to make then by all means you can make it Yeah, but stop stop trying to be the one who tries to cause issues all the time when there's no issues. Yeah. And that makes it look really terrible when you attack people who are good people who are doing good stuff. Right. And I was just about to jump right into the conclusion and I don't remember, I don't know how to close it without you. So that's going to be it for this (laughs) week's episode. Uh, Please like, share, subscribe, share, like it, all the things. Yeah. Uh, follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have any questions that you'd like for us to answer on the uh, podcast, you can email us at thexhousepod at gmail.com. And until next time, peace. Bye now. Bye.